Today on the Dolby Institute podcast, we talk about the new Netflix series, Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities, nominated for an amazing seven primetime Emmy Awards. The genre is squarely within a horror sci-fi, you know, mode. And it is about what we don't see in life. That's what makes shooting horror films or um, thrillers so interesting, is that we allow the audience to only see what we want them to see and tease the rest of it into the blacks. On the podcast today, we're joined by the series showrunner and executive producer, Miles Dale, and two of the recipients of those Emmy nominations, cinematographer Anastas Mikos, who goes by Toss, as well as sound supervisor Nelson Ferreira. And the last time Nelson was on our show was way back on episode number 32 to talk about his Oscar nomination for The Shape of Water. So it was great to have him back again to discuss another nomination for another collaboration with Guillermo del Toro. Our conversation today focuses on episode three of the series, The Autopsy, and we get into a lot of spoilers. So if you haven't seen the episode yet, I encourage you to hit pause, go over to Netflix, where Cabinet of Curiosities is streaming right now in Dolby Vision and Dolby Atmos, and give it a look. I started the conversation by talking with showrunner Miles Dale about the anthology format. In the 80s and 90s, it was pretty conventional wisdom that anthology series didn't work because audiences needed consistent characters to get emotionally invested in. But we seem to be in a new golden age of anthology series right now. And I asked Miles why he thought the format and this series were finding success. Well, I think it's a few things. Um, a short attention span might be uh, one of them. But I, I think that, you know, people just like good storytelling and while it is a little bit of a risk to do something where there isn't a cliffhanger that makes you tune in next week or, you know, skip intro in five seconds, um, you know, a broad uh, a base of things that are sort of tonally uh, consistent um, seemed likely to uh, find an audience and was a fun playground for us. Guillermo and I, both being children of the 60s, you know, grew up on Albert Hitchcock Presents, Twilight Zone, Night Gallery, um, many of those kinds of shows. And, and you know, we wanted to do something like that, and we felt that there was an audience for it. There aren't that many of those shows around. You know, you've got Black Mirror, which, you know, has that sort of tech gone bad thread um, that holds it together that, you know, you know maybe um, speaks to a, a more specific audience. But for us, it was just a question of... Um, uh, a medium that we loved, uh, that we thought was underrepresented, some stories that Guillermo in particular had wanted to tell for a while, and it was kind of the only way uh, to do it. So, uh, you know, we and Netflix felt it would um, uh, it, it'd be kind of a worthwhile risk to do. Um, uh, and, and that was really the, the impetus for us. And I think, you know, in the feedback that we've had, um, sure, uh, everyone could get to episode two or three or four or if they get to one that didn't particularly hit them, they can either skip around or drop it. But, you know, we found that that wasn't the case and that most people actually did stay with the show. I was really fascinated by the way this uh, this episode structured. Um, rather than just going chronologically, we start with the explosion in the coal mine and then we jump forward to the 
really in you know in-depth intense conversation between Craven and Winters and then we start jumping back and forth in time and I was really kind of curious about how you guys arrived at the structure one of the things I noticed was I was never lost for a second I really you guys were able to keep me tracked all the way through so was that something that was in the original short story what did it come through the writing process and how did you arrive at the structure of the piece it really came in the writing process frankly um you know we wanted to do something that struck a balance between uh, us not getting ahead of the audience, uh, but also unpeeling the onion in such a way that, you know, we can tease with the one thing and then fill in the blanks later as um, uh, um, uh, Winters and the Sheriff are, are are unspooling it. So we actually played with it. It went it, it was originally a little less then it was a little more. And then we found uh, kind of this sweet spot where we felt it was really going to give the show great energy to you know, show the audience some and then come back and, and fill in those blanks. So it was kind of one of the only, really maybe the only episode where we used that kind of a structure and we were really kind of jazzed when we found the magic, uh, uh, you know, spot with the storytelling. Yeah, it works so well. I, I was really mesmerized by the opening of the show. You know, the, this very powerful image of the spider web and then the, the, the image of the spider that we keep coming back to through the show. Then the spider web becomes the nighttime star field, and then that becomes the wall of the mine, uh, the rock walls of that mine. Nelson, t tell us a little bit about the sound design for that opening part and, and the mix and how you guided us through the opening into that first sequence. I adore this episode, and I, uh, and I love the opening of this episode. And uh, it wasn't really fleshed out until a little bit later, but... And it, when we did see it, it appeared like almost deceivingly simple as it's just a, really a couple of transitions, right? Like from the web, as you said, to the star field uh, and then to the rock face. And yet the sequence of the images, they sort of say, um, they say so much on their own as well as in context with the theme of the story, right? Like sort of going full circle to the end of the story. Uh, like the spider web is, is kind of small and delicate and it's evocative like of hunter and prey, which kind of ties in with the traveler yet it's so complex and symbolic of the cosmos, right? And then boom, you go, you know, this hands us off to the star field, which it's like rotating gently and you would think quietly in the universe, uh, but it's accompanied by the sound of this ominous kind of metal clockwork, right? And that carries us to the glistening rock face at the bottom of the mine shaft. And we're like, ah, oh, of course, this is mining material, right? And it takes us into the regular storytelling. So it was, I don't know, I mean, like really poetic, almost like a 2001 approach, uh, you know, to doing sound. And um, 
like we were all over it, obviously. And, and when the web then like reappears after the mineshaft explosion, it launches us beautifully like into the storytelling of the episode, right? Toss, for you and Nelson both, I'd love to hear about your, your initial conversations with the director, David Pryor, about that opening sequence, about how you, you know, w what did you need to do to set the right tone visually and orally for the show? Of course, tone is everything. I mean, David and I uh, watched The Deer Hunter because it's squarely in the 70s and, you know, it's a favorite film of ours and it's an Appalachian sort of feel to the whole thing. But the interesting thing about tone is that that spider was a web was a serendipitous catch. Um, David and I had gone with just a camera in a van to grab some second unit stuff of a river going by. And in fact, it was so serendipitous that I had taken the tire off the van to use as set dressing with a couple of crushed Coke cans in there to really set the fact that this was an industrial. David spots the spider web and says, shoot the web. I go, oh, I don't have enough backlight. Here's a water bottle. Let me sprinkle it on this web. And out of that kind of imagery, and which is the best thing about what we do, which is the spontaneous creation of images, as well as the pre-visual ones that led to that whole tonality of in editorial of where we were going with the whole thing. Um, the the morph between the star field and the uh, face of the anthracite rock uh, was always in the script, but the spider spider stuff was just scrapped. You really embraced contrast and darkness in this show, not only to set up the mood, but I think to effectively hide things from the viewer. How did you tell me about the decision process of using darkness and how did you know how far to go how and 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 how far was too much and I'm curious about Dolby Vision the the Dolby Vision version of this looks spectacular and there's so much detail in those blacks so tell me about your use of darkness in the show Well I mean the genre is squarely within a horror sci-fi you know mode and it is about what we don't see in life. That's what makes shooting horror films or um, thrillers so interesting, is that we allow the audience to only see what we want them to see and tease the rest of it into the blacks. Um, although at the same time, it is television. And what I didn't want to do, and neither did David, was put it so deep that you might possibly do in a feature because you know nobody knows where home TVs are set these days. Um, and so we're always struggling against that. Um, so I think it was a strong balance in the DI. I mean, obviously the negative, quote unquote, was there. Um, and it was a balance in the DI to try and bring out those details, which worked quite well. And what made it a noir feel was the contrast of color as much as anything else. I mean, um, although set in the 70s in Appalachia, there's certain scenes that David and I really wanted to be saturated uh, in order to contrast, for example, the first discovery of the orb into the, in the upstairs room versus the explosion in the mine and the darkness there. Um, it was the question of the, contrasting the colors of the incandescent lights that were in the mine versus the star field before. Um, so that's kind of where I was going with the whole thing is if I couldn't get it into the darkness, I, I'd pull it out and I'd give that contrast in, in color. Are you able to participate in the DI process and the, the, the finishing and, and the vision grade, or are you already uh, several shows down the, down the pike at that point? No, I'm, I'm several shows down the pike, but you know, Miles and, and the entire production team really embraced 
you know, the, the work and the art of the cinematographer, which is, you know, from beginning to end, having ownership and collective vision of the actual image. And because of COVID and because of, you know, traveling restrictions and whatnot, um, I timed that in my bathroom in New York City because it was the only room that had no windows. And I sat in my bathtub with an iPad <laughs> with our color dimer and uh, did a couple of passes. So, yes, uh, there was a fond memory of um, in a darkened room on an, on an iPad Pro, which are now color graded. Um, so that they're pretty much universal, no matter where we see them. Were you working in Dolby Vision on your iPad Pro, or was that an SDR grade? No, that was an SDR grade. And normally what happens is, and normally we do an SDR grade first, and then go to Dolby Vision, uh, because otherwise it slows down the process. Tell me about creating the look and the sound of, of the orb. Uh, Toss, you, you, you brought up the orb, and I wanted to ask you about that. I made a note to myself when I was watching uh, that opening sequence, uh, and what I thought was the bomb showed up in the mind. And I just wrote a note to myself, what am I hearing here? So tell me about that, that, that the, the orb and, and how you approached Nelson, you for the sound design and Taz, uh, the, the, the visual, uh, the visuals of the, of the orb. The orb was presented to us as a, I guess it was called an intelligent vessel. We were just basically given that lead and, and to, to run with it. David was very good that way in terms of providing a, just an outline and kind of letting us go and, and I, don't, I don't know, wander our way there, I guess I'll call it. But earlier in the mine explosion, I think what we're hearing, I mean, it's sort of more alert and I think we're hearing power surges, beeps. And what's really cool about that one is it's sort of um, an animal growl that's been metallicized to sort of give it a, you know, so it still has that menace, but in a, a sort of, you know, futuristic con context. I wanted to ask you about shooting that opening mind sequence. Uh, that's such a it's it's such a uh, it was such a, a, visual, a, a visceral experience. Was that all? Was that a soundstage or was that a practical location or what, what, what was your approach to shooting that sequence? It was. I mean, Tomorrow's just amazing production designer. So um, that kind of collaboration is just so wonderful to to just be a part of. Um, it was actually, if I Miles will correct me, uh, an abandoned power plant that was a stage that we used as a stage. And um, she fashioned not long, maybe 10 or 15 meters, 30, 35 feet worth of, worth of actual mine out of styrofoam with certain sections that were set pieces that were really were anthracite and coal. And the rest of it was extended um, into a abandoned power plant. So that was, um, a little difficult for camera because a we had to shoot in a confined space with time restrictions that we all have in in television uh, or in features um but we did have breakaway walls that we could hide cameras in and whatnot and our key grip robert did an amazing job of getting a technocrane um somehow into that space and and making that work and then also she fashioned this elevator and you know the elevator is supposed to plummet 10 stories um but by virtue of it being a stage, it only actually traveled 10 feet. 
Um, so that's all smoke and mirrors and lights and, uh, and little lighting gags to make that sort of whole um, elevator journey work at the beginning of that sequence. I'm really glad that you guys brought up the production design um, because that, that makeshift morgue set was just so it was it was so amazing to me nelson how your team brought that that set to life through sound taz the the use of color and contrast and darkness in the makeshift morgue was just amazing to me because i mean that's an example of all the departments on a show coming together and playing their a game so i'd love for you to talk about the the design aesthetic of that of that morgue kind of what you did tonally with that space uh, and then Nelson, how you how you brought that to life with some some really interesting ambience work in there. I thought one of the first things that uh, struck me about the script is as soon as Murray enters the morgue and turns on a light, the lights don't change. I mean, it is a working place, so it was a question of how to keep the interest of the audience um, through. I can't remember how many pages of see of what we did there, but it's certainly the entire last act. Um, and still be able to move camera and still give the scene, the suspense, and the intent uh, that we needed. So, again, we had this amazing set that was just beautiful to light, but part of the challenge was once they walked in, the lights were on. Um, so part of it was being able to embrace the fact that it was abandoned and let sections fall into darkness and disrepair, and particularly, that would be the autopsy room itself. And then the interior of the makeshift morgue part, which is the sort of ice room, um, that was just using practical lighting and just trying to put it in places that would make sense and still keep our characters shadowed and, and, um, and silhouetted when needed and, you know, give it the appropriate color palette. Uh, always in the back of my mind, although David and I discuss color palette a lot, I mean, it is a GDT Presents show, and so Guillermo's sort of sensibilities through time around production design and just wandering the offices, you know, and being such a huge fan of his work, those colors are obviously um, derivative of some of the stuff that he likes. One of the things that, that I also really loved about the Morg sequence is, is the reliance on practical effects um, over CGI. Uh, and of course, the disadvantage of that is sometimes that you know you run the risk of it looking a little cheesy, which was not the case in this. This was horrifying and disgusting, and you know all of the the good things that you would expect out of a sequence like this. So, Toss, tell me about about your approach to shooting some of that 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 practical, um, you know, the, the makeup and the, the the body pieces and and whatnot to kind of maximize that horrible effect. Well, there's a a huge. I mean, it was a long process where everybody was involved um i mean from miles to pr uh, production design fs makeup uh lighting etc mostly because we were dealing with wax and molds and when we um dwell on it long enough um they tend to look fake what works on our side though is that very few of the audience and certainly very few of the crew members had ever been in a morgue or seen a body or even, you know, see the inside of a body. So that we were allowed some leeway in trying to figure out how to make it, um, how to make it gory enough and feel visceral enough. The practical effects of how to hide a body is a classic, you know, woman in a box deal, you know, every magic show in the world has it, except that we had the added 
disadvantage of our table, if you were, um, was slatted. So therefore it wasn't opaque. We could actually see between the slats and that both led to the, um, led to the believability of it. Um, because, you know, we looked underneath the table and obviously there was no human there. So the way that worked was our alien was literally lying on a table with a dummy body attached to his chest and there was a chair and whatnot of lounge for him to lay down on. Um, and then through camera trickery and some CGI, but through camera trickery, we kind of managed to avoid um, seeing the actor's body. Yeah, I mean, Guillermo and I have always been fans of practical effects. And, you know, when there was no CGI and you had to do practical, you did the best you could. And you couldn't always do everything that was, you know, in your head and in your dreams. But... You know, I think we generally try to start with practical and then use CGI where we need to and certainly for the, the fine brush strokes. Um, I mean, I feel like on this uh, episode, there was a, like a lot of anatomy classes about, OK, when you open up that chest, what does it look like? How does a rib cage come apart? What do the organs look like? And, you know, we 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 went to the organ market and, and you know, we I remember I think at some point we had to go to like a butcher shop and just go and get something. I forget what it was. It, it was um, uh, and, pig you know, heart. A, a, we had a, a pig heart. Pig. I think it was I think it was a pig heart. We did not kill the pig, but we we, we went to a butcher and I guess the guy who was making pork chops had, had it laying around. So, you know, there was a lot of that, which was which was interesting. And then, of course, when it comes to you know, the, the, the alien sort of entering his body with all those tentacles. Well, there's no way you can do that. So, you know, we really kind of went to school, uh, 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 there and, 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 and used our bullets on, on, on that. But I think generally you'll find that, that, that our work will have a, a healthy combination of both and that we won't rely on CGI because oftentimes, you know, it looks like what it is and, and an audience is sophisticated enough now to know, what it is so um that's the goal anyway well it worked extremely well it was very dis disquieting um nelson i wanted to ask you uh one of my favorite elements of the the, the track of the of the show is the the traveler and the way he he kind of he tends to seduce his victims almost like with a kind of a jedi mind hypnosis kind of treatment with his voice it's a secret now we're friends, aren't we? Good friends. I mean, you said so, didn't you? Maybe we can be best friends. I'm knock your beer onto the floor. Be sloppy. Call me your friend. Ask me to drive you home. Tell us about how you approached that De developing that that sound of the traveler's voice, and uh, and and the, the effect of him kind of overwhelming his his victims that he's seducing. Yeah, this was something actually we talked about a lot from the early stages. Like David and I talked about, um, and I mean with anything, he didn't really get into specifics or fill in the blanks for us. But he he'd start to draw like these references to so many other films, right? And not as a means of like knocking them off, but uh, but like. Here's what they did in film X or Y to convey this psychological effect. And that's what I'm trying to do. And, you know, he had, like, fortunately, he's got, I think, an encyclopedic knowledge of films and, like, particularly in the horror genre. Um, 
like actually for that, for this voice, he actually referenced uh, voice work on Creepshow, <laughs> which was a, it's a movie I loved as a teenager. And he suggested it as an approach, but not, but certainly not as an end product, but just, hey, this is a rabbit hole you might want to go down. So um, I suggested right off the bat that we re-record all of Luke Richards' lines at high resolution, right, to give us like maximum design playability. And uh, surprisingly, David was all in <laughs> to ADRing the entire performance, a, a good performance for an actor. And so we did this marathon session uh, during which we recorded all of the Traveler's lines um, with a couple of different accents and, uh, and also as whispers, right? So uh, the versions, we then like, we pitched, we pitched and layered the versions and then I cut whispers to trail the main dialogue like to create a sort of what he says versus what his victim hears effect, if you know what I mean. And uh, our mixer, uh, Mike Warnick, he delayed the whispers like further and moved them around the room, like to help create a feel of uh, hypnosis. Uh, and uh, I like personally, I especially like how pitch, like how we use the pitch to change the traveler's character through the autopsy scene. I found it the most interesting there, like more so than in the bar. Um, because it, he sort of goes from very weak and pathetic when he's down on the floor to menacing and powerful just by using pitch. And then, uh, and then we waver his voice as the scene goes almost as he's struggling to survive in like the damaged body of his host. Right. Um, so and David and I actually, we sat down and bent the pitch on specific words and phrases as he called them out. So we'd like watch the scene through and he'd say there, right there. And then we would like bend it and there, that word there, boom. And we would bend it. Right. And, uh, it, I, it, you know, the effect even surprised me. I was really impressed. I gotta say. Yeah. I, I really appreciate you brought that up because one of the things I wanted to ask you about was that, 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 that autopsy sequence and, and the way you actually used, uh, I felt the way you used Dolby Atmos in the voices was really creative um, in that, that kind of that, that final tussle, you know, uh, sequence between, between the two of them. I'd love for you to talk about kind of the, the really the, there are some big Atmos moments in the show, the meteor, uh, you know, you know, going by, uh, but that, that final kind of conversation between the two of them during the autopsy was for me kind of a, an, an amazing Atmos moment. So again, it's always like the most impressive stuff that we seem to do in the least amount of time because that that came together really late in the game because it was such a complex V effect. And I'm not even sure David knew exactly where it was going to go. We had to kind of see it play itself out and that it needed time to flesh out. Like I'm talking over weeks and weeks and weeks, right? So so when it did arrive, we were we were pretty blown away. Like it's it's reminiscent of uh, traveling across l the landscape of an alien world, right? Like just sort of strafing across the surface of Jupiter or something. Um, there's a lot of organic sounds, uh, liquid rushing, pulsing, uh, air movement, and there's even some animal growls in there again. Get a lot of mileage out of animal growls. Um, uh, the sounds are pretty unique unto themselves, but they shared a lot of the same frequencies. So uh, we use the room, and you mentioned you know, Atmos, we had to use the room to play them very selectively so they could sort of stand out on their own. Um, and it was also key in making us feel like we were inside of something huge, like not inside a brain, but inside of a consciousness, right? So the treatment of Winner's voice was ideal. Um, I thought um, 
and I guess the traveler's voice is treated the same way, but we leaned into it a bit more on, on winters to make him feel like he had the upper hand. And, um, I, it, it, again, it surprised me because we placed it almost equally in every speaker in the room and the effect was unbelievably like it was coming from inside you. Right. So it was, uh, it, it was huge gains <laughs> for relatively little effort on the, uh, on the mix stage. So kudos to those guys for pulling it off. I'd never really heard anybody use Atmos in that in that way before. I'm, I'm kind of curious, Nelson, from your standpoint, uh, and maybe Miles, this is something that you would want to uh, uh, weigh in on as well. Uh, you know, it, it feels like people are becoming more adventurous in using Atmos uh, in episodic storytelling, and I think that this this episode, certainly the autopsy, is a great example of that. Nelson, is that something that you're seeing that people are, are willing to kind of have a little bit more fun? And use the technology only the ex only to the extent that that filmmakers are becoming more adventurous, right? Like you can only, you know, you you can only do you can only work with what you're given in a sense, right? And you have to you need something like you need a filmmaker like like Guillermo or or you know someone like David to be able to present you with that canvas to be able to work with, right? I mean, there's 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 plenty of instances where you know we're asked to sort of uh, provide uh, an Atmos mix. And it's like, you know, this is, this is a narrative film. And if you lean too hard into it, this just comes off as gimmickry as something distracting that's over your head or behind you being presented with something like this. It's, it's a dream, right? It's a playground. If you really want to work in the immersive medium, it's, you know, it's fantastic. It's all there. I mean, you know, you just have to sort of fill it in, in a sense. Right. So this, this was, this was a dream. This is probably the, you know, the, the heaviest, the heaviest instance that we've ever used Atmos and to, to great, great effect. It's like, how far do you want to go? It's like, we just kept going and going and, you know, a lot never seemed like too much. For my part, I'll say that, um, I think a lot of people now at home, um, have rather sophisticated sound systems and Netflix, um, uh, is very open to it, you know, even though there's a cost and certainly the filmmakers, I mean, I, you know, I don't know if you're doing a Hallmark movie or whatever, but like, we're always interested in pushing that envelope and, and, and want to make it as good as we can for whatever, you know, part of our audience, uh, that we can. So, um, you know, ever since I heard, you know, jets panning across the top or birds flying across or, you know, however we can, you know, do, you know, that, that sort of, um, sophisticated, you know, um, uh, 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 sound design, uh, we're up for that. So we, we generally at this point, no matter what it is, uh, film or television are mixing in Atmos because we just want to sort of, um, reach for the top, you know, final question for you, Miles, uh, you're the co-showrunner on the show with, uh, Guillermo del Toro, uh, who's been on this podcast a couple of times in the past couple of years. Uh, so it's, it's, I was very curious to talk with you guys about this show. Every episode is directed by a different filmmaker and they all have very unique styles, voices, approaches to storytelling. Tell us about your collaboration with Guillermo and how you guided each of your directors through the process of, of, of building the show. Well, that's an interesting question because in fact, the, um, the North Star of this show was to provide a showcase for directors um, with stories that, you know, uh, Guillermo uh, loved. And so we 
unlike most of television where, you know, showrunner who's typically a writer um, will, uh, you know, they'll hire directors and, and they'll do the show and they'll do their cut and then they're kind of out of it uh, in most cases. Here, we really wanted this to be the director's vision. So uh, in some cases, you know, mostly it started with us identifying what we considered to be um, underexposed filmmakers. You know, David in particular, you know, The Empty Man um, was an amazing movie that not a lot of people got a chance to see because the timing of the Fox sale to Disney, um, you know, it took took all the time for the Fox executives and and and. He didn't get a great release and he didn't get great marketing, but it was um, it was a terrific movie and it showed, um, you know, a great uh, vision. So uh, and same with Anna Lilly, same with all the directors. In fact, really, Catherine Hardwick, I think, you know, by far was the only one who had done, you know, sort of uh, bigger studio movies. And and and, and uh, so that was really the 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 genesis of it is is finding those directors that we felt had uh, a voice that needed to be heard um, that we could um, expose to the world to, you know, generally a far bigger audience, the hundreds of millions of um, uh, uh, Netflix members, uh, as opposed to most of them had done either indie movies or movies that hadn't been seen and then give them the reins, you know? So, as I said, in many cases, um, we, we, you know, we gave them uh, cinematographers of their choice, as was the case with Toss. Uh, we gave all of them uh, the choice of their own composer. Um, you know, we worked with them together on the casting, but we generally, I wouldn't say we left them alone, but, but you know, we, we supported them where they needed to be. Generally, the, the decisions were um, uh, theirs to make uh, w within reason and with, with, with our guidance and all the way from script and sometimes including rewrites, um, uh, you know, through, you know, casting, location, selection, production, uh, and all the way through the cut, you know, we were all, we were very involved with the cut, obviously Guillermo and I, and then, you know, right down to sound and color. So that was really the, the, the mantra was that it wasn't that, you know, we were, we were kind of like hovering over them. We really, really wanted it to be their, um, uh, vision, uh, all the way from top to bottom, uh, where they could take, these individual episodes and, you know, eight beautiful different episodes and, and be able to expose them, uh, um, uh, their work to the world. So that was a hundred percent the, the guiding principle of, um, of this series. Yeah. And it, 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 it sounds like you were just so empowering of the, the directors. I mean, I was very caught by what Nelson just said a few minutes ago about sitting with David Pryor on the mixing stage and making decisions about, you know, individual lines of, of, uh, of dialogue, which is, you know, an episodic television directors, you know, they're usually not around for the mix. So it sounds like you, you guys really did an amazing job of supporting them and their vision all the way through to the end, which is, it's, a, it's an extraordinary thing. I will say this, making eight movies at the same time is very difficult and uh, if, if there hadn't been that division of labor where somebody is absolutely on top of every single thing, I, I'm not sure that that we could have done it, frankly. And another thing to note, um, uh, none of the eight directors asked me one question about any of the other seven episodes. So it was kind of like, 
yeah, you mean you don't all work for me all the time? Uh, and it's like, no, no, they've got, you know, Tamara's got to move on to this next show and she can't spend all day on this chair. So it was interesting, like, but, you know, fr frankly, as proud as we are of this show, I would not advise anybody to do an anthology series because it will not extend your life and it may in fact shorten it. <laughs> All right, well, on that note, I think we'll wrap up this conversation. Miles Nelson Toss, uh, congratulations on the success of the show. Seven Emmy nominations. It's a great, uh, it's a great achievement. Uh, uh, congratulations again. And thanks for coming on the Dolby Podcast to talk to us about it. Thank you, thanks Glenn. Thank you very much. Thank Appreciate you. it, thanks. Many thanks once again to Miles, Nelson, and Taz for joining us today. And an extra special thanks to our friends at Netflix for putting this conversation together and for giving us those amazing clips. Be sure to check out Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities, now streaming on Netflix in stunning Dolby Vision and Dolby Atmos. You can find a link, as always, in our show notes. If you'd like even more conversations with artists and filmmakers about how they use technology to tell their stories, please be sure you are subscribed to us the Dolby Institute podcast. You can find links to our show on all the major podcasting platforms, including the video version on YouTube and our show notes. Or you can simply search for Dolby wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're curious to know more about the Dolby Institute, head on over to dolbyinstitute.com. There you'll find information about all of our programs. You can access the entire library of episodes of this podcast, and you can sign up for our mailing list. Until next time, Thanks again for joining us. This is the Dolby Institute podcast. I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Our producer and editor is Michael Coleman. Our executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry, with additional editing by Matt Nixon. Thanks for joining us. Mm -hmm.